and welcome to another episode of Capital Record. I am your host, David Monson, and I am thrilled to be bringing back onto the podcast today one of my true mentors, teachers, and friends, the father in so many ways of modern supply-side economics, Dr. Art Laffer. Uh, he, of course, is still blessed with living contemporaries who share the mantle in, in the founding of supply-side economics. You still have Steve Forbes and Larry Kudlow and other great leaders out there. But Art Laffer, really obviously known uh, famously for the Laffer curve, um, he is just such a wonderful treat to talk to, uh, what he's meant for public policy, what he's meant for the national conversation about economics. He's a true intellectual um, and yet, unlike so many intellectuals, he's an incredibly fun person. And uh, he has a new book out. We're going to talk about Taxes Have Consequences. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy what he has to say. Uh, we're going to unpack what the book's about, why it had to be written, and what we want the takeaways to be. Let me uh, shut up now and just bring on Dr. Art Laffer. And so with that said, allow me to welcome back to Capital Record. This is the third time, and that's what you get when you're going into your third year with the podcast. You start getting to have distinguished guests on for not the second time, but the third time. Um, but a legend and supply-side guru, and also a man I'm pleased to call a friend, a mentor, Dr. Art Laffer. Art, welcome back to National Review's Capital Record. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure being with you. I'm a big fan, by the way, reciprocating with you. Well, You've done they, a great they, job. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, I appreciate it. I've had good teachers. You know, when we gave um, Cudlow the, uh, the Buckley Award out here in, in, at the Reagan Library uh, back in September, yep. I, I got to uh, introduce him and give my little speech that night. And I even, I even mentioned you in my, in my comments, but I think it's one thing that's so important. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting close to 50 here and I got a lot of energy and, and you at your age have as much energy. Larry's at the number one show on business television. You know, it doesn't matter. People are 80, 70, 50, 20. I don't care. We have a cause we believe in and it's, and it's a lot of fun to get up every day and fight for it. It sure is. It's a great, I'm 82 now. So, uh, you know, I think of Larry as a kid. And yeah. you, you, you're, you're, you're prenatal. I mean, yeah, well, I, that's what I need to do is have 82 year olds that I think are like 50, you know, uh, come on my podcast more, but you, you know, it's, I was on with George Gilder, um, at, uh, Mark Skousen's event, um, yep. in, in, uh, Vegas last summer. And, you know, George, George is older and he's been around a long time. I've been reading him since I was a little kid, but he, his physical conditioning, would put any of my 50 year old peers to shame. He, you know? he does marathons for God's sake. It's unbelievable. Sakes. I mean, you know, he's a vegan marathon. I mean, he looks, I mean, that type of skinny look, but he's an amazing athlete. I've known George from the beginning of time, of course. I'm just a huge fan. Well, so we, um, we have a book out. Uh, you and I have the same publisher, Post Hill Press. They published uh, last, late in 2021, my book, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths in which you are quoted many times. And in late 2022, they quoted, um, oh, excuse me, they published uh, the latest book from Art Laffer, which is co-written with, with another um, uh, Capital Record guest and, and really one of my favorite thinkers on supply side movement, Brian Dimitrovich. 
um, who wrote that classic book, Econoclast, which I can't speak highly enough. Um, but but our, why don't you, in your words, just tell our listeners kind of what the basic takeaway is and why taxes have consequences needed to be written? Well, it comes to really, there are a lot of myths about taxes and especially from academics who, who really don't look at the subject very carefully. Uh, and they talk about tax the rich, the one percenters, and you know all the shtick that they have on, on those people. And this book really wanted to be the seminal piece on the history of the U.S. income tax from its foundation in 1913 on to the present. Now, we use the perspective for much of the book of the top 1% uh, of income earners and the highest marginal income tax rates to specifically undress, if you will, the, the, major, uh, the major myths or stories about how we need to raise taxes on the rich to help the economy, to help the poor, the minorities, the disenfranchised. And what we do is we go through very, very carefully what happens when you raise taxes. And let me just say this, David, if I can, this is not a sampling of data. This is not a, uh, a hypothesis testing. This is not a sort of a, a storytelling type of thing. We have every single tax return, period. Uh, it's not a sample property. We have it all. We know who the top 1% were. We know what their average incomes were. We know what their adjusted gross incomes. We know how much taxes they paid. This is a comprehensive data-based analysis. It's not how we wish things were. This is how things actually were. What I did in the first ones here, just to be put it into public, public policy perspective, was every single time we've raised tax rates on the rich, every single time, uh, the economy has underperformed. Every single time we have lowered tax rates on the rich, the economy has outperformed. And, and that really, really is true. You can go through it in 1913, the highest marginal income tax rate was 7%. They raised it up to 77% by 1918. Then it went way down again in 1920, 1920 and 21 to 73%. Then it went way down to 25%, the roaring 20s. Then we got the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which triggered the Great Depression. And then they raised the highest tax rate up to 63% on January 1st, 1932. Oh, this whole period. So we have lots and lots of data. The first, uh, obviously, central tendency, not central. Virtually every single time you've raised tax rates, the economy has underperformed. And every time you've lowered them, it's outperformed. Number two. Are on that point, yeah. is the way you're measuring economic underperformance or outperformance on GDP growth? Yes. Yes, exactly. We're looking at GDP growth per adult detrended, real GDP growth per adult detrended to get GDP. We also look at it as standard of living, which is GDP X defense spending uh, per adult detrended both ways. Now, it becomes really important to juxtapose those two views during the World War II and World War One. But that's, that's an important point because the left will often say, you only can measure taxes as improve lower taxes improving the economy by your greedy metric of corporate profits. But you're looking, GDP is going to capture real wages. It's going to capture business investment. It's going to yep. capture consumption. So quality of life. Yeah. Well, just for example, during the during World War II, uh, real wages, man hour pay was uh, way below what it had been a, a century earlier. Uh, the reason is all the consumable products had been blown up in Europe so that the real GDP available for consumer consumption was greatly reduced. Man hours increased enormously. Participation rates increased. The unemployment rate went below 1%. But that's because people were starving to death effectively 
and we're working hours like mad just to uh, just to break even. Uh, you know, it's amazing there. And what you also find is that when you raise tax rates on the rich, one of the things that's really fascinating is that the poor, the minorities, the disenfranchised, the lower echelons on the economic ladder suffer the most. What happens is when you raise tax rates on the rich, it's very true that the rich earn less. They, they do earn less. But what they do earn, they shelter. So the drop in their income, reported income, is much, much larger than their drop in actual income because with high tax rates, all of a sudden, tax sheltering becomes very attractive and they do that. And, 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 and the last thing is that the poor and the lower echelons do very badly during high tax rates and the rich and do very well, by the way, when tax rates and the rich are lowered. And, and the last thing that's sort of fascinating is that when you have very high tax rates and the rich, they would collect, and this is in the post-war period, they'd collect two, two and a half percent of GDP as revenues from the top one percent. But what happened is those in the bottom 95, in other words, just missing a small group, taxes from the bottom 95 went way, way up until we got to, 90, to 1981, 82. When they lowered the highest tax rates in 81, 82, tax revenues from the rich rose from two, two and a half percent to four percent. And tax revenues from the bottom 95 percent as a share of GDP dropped down to four percent. So it's really fascinating. These are the big picture political pictures today. I mean, every single era has its own fun stories. Chapter two, we outlined the 20 biggest, biggest tax shelters in the, throughout the whole history. It's just cool, this stuff. And, and you know, we have a period of the Great Depression. We have a period of uh, monetary policy and how that really didn't explain the Great Depression. And we go through all the different periods and ending with Trump. And so the um, critique could be if you take just Reagan's tax cuts and, and what happened, or even just Kennedy's that correlation is not causation and one or two incidents doesn't make your case, but by going through a whole century of data, it becomes empirically overwhelming. It does. And also we look at the states in the interwar period yeah. and we look at the states in the post-World War II period. Now, for example, there are 11 states that introduced an income tax since 1961. That starts with West Virginia and ends with Connecticut in 1991. Each of those states declined dramatically relative to the rest of the nation after putting in the income tax, each had every one of them in every single metrics, David. It's amazing. And it's amazing what happened in the interwar period because uh, the states themselves were the unindicted co-conspirators of, of the Great Depression. They raised taxes like mad from 31 on through 39, 40. It's Generally as marginal income rates or were they raising uh, they business did. taxes, investment taxes? They introduced income taxes, all except 11 states. I mean, all except 20 states. They do the uh, payroll taxes. They did property yeah. taxes. Illinois was property tax crazy. They did yeah. corporate taxes. I mean, virtually any tax that they could find, they did. It was like if it swam, they taxed it. If it flew, they taxed it. If it crawled, they taxed it. It's just amazing. And by the way, in 19, let's say 32, I think state and local taxes were twice the size of all others. Uh, state local taxes were twice the size of state and federal taxes in revenues. It's just amazing how property tax were a huge, huge tax. And of course, with the fall in prices, that raised property tax rates dramatically, which had all the riots in Illinois. It's just fun stories of history that have unfortunately been forgotten. So when, when you take a thesis that you and Brian have that I share, um, that taxes have consequences and that there is um, incentives that uh, when you reduce marginal income tax burdens, you get more productivity 
and other just basic kind of theses of the supply side movement, um, the critique can be one of two things now. Because uh, I don't think there's any question that the case has been made persuasively that lower taxes creates more economic growth and higher taxes takes away economic growth. And hopefully that isn't too complicated for people. The first concern would be, okay, then, fine. How do you want to fund government? And the second case is, number two, the morality argument, the justice argument, that it's a, we need some form of redistribution um, because the bottom line is the rich get too rich, they hoard, you get oligarchies, blah, blah, blah. Both of um, those issues are directly addressed. Yeah. So uh, tell me, one. tell me first on uh, on the funding of government. Yeah. Um, I think that if there's any friction at all, which I don't think there is, with me and the supply side geniuses, the heroes of the movement, it's that I'm still a little bit harder on the big spending than I think you know ha has been the case in the history of our movement. Right. Um, we we've allowed the size of government to grow too much. And, and I understand that deficit spending, when it is funded by tax cuts that effectively, dynamically pay for themselves over time with better growth, that that's not what we're really talking about. But I am concerned with a GDP as a percent, government as a percentage of GDP that goes from 15 to 23, 24. Yeah. How do you pay for the government that we have clearly determined we want to have in this country? Yeah. Let, let me just say that this is a book on taxes and it's the tax history of the U.S. Uh, it is not the monetary history. It's not the trade history. It's not the regulatory history. It's not the government spending history. Although I've done those and others, my book on international trade is the trade history of the U.S. I've done those books on monetary policies, you know, so where I've done the exact. What you find here on funding government, which is sort of fun, is every time we've raised tax rates on the rich, every time, and, and this is weird, but every time we've done that, uh, the rich pay less in taxes. And every time we've lowered tax rate because they have no incentive uh, when it's low tax rates not to report all the income they can, and they do, and revenues go way, way up. So therefore, in funding government, you're not going to get the money from the rich. You're just not. If you raise tax on the rich, you're going to get less money from them. Uh, and that's why you find that in every time the Kennedy tax cuts, and I'm just using these as anecdotes, yeah. The Kennedy tax cuts, the Reagan tax cuts, what happened is revenues from the top 1% of income earners went way, 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 way up. Uh, and it's just uh, straightforward there. L let me let me try to get through on, on, the, on the spending side, which is pretty important, and on the income distribution side. We start off with SIA's measures of inequality, income inequality, which is the percentage of total income earned by the top 1%. So when that's very high income is very unequal, it gets sometimes as high as, oh, 22%. And when it's very low, when it sometimes gets down to 10% or even lower than that, like in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 30s, uh, you find that the income is much more equal. But what you find happening is that when you did do get more equal income, it's because you've made the rich report a lot less income and the poor report less income too, and they are hammered. But the rich report a lot less income because they shelter their income with high tax rates. So you don't collect the income you do. We have the, the one chapter on, uh, on Warren Buffett, which is just a lovely example because he has been so transparent on his income and his income taxes and all that that he's disclosed to the New York Times. 
that you can really look at that. ProPublica now has a lot of those same numbers that they've stolen and illegally released. Yeah. But, but Warren Buffett released his income tax returns legally and just told it, here's how I do it. And he had an income in 2010 that I calculated about 12 and a half to 13 billion. And he paid 7 million in taxes uh, because of the unrealized, all the shelters that he's used and the gifts to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, his family foundations, all of that. Quite honestly, quite straightforwardly, quite correctly. I mean, it's just what they've now released on Trump. I mean, all those were legal deductions. Uh, they, they weren't illegal. Uh, it's just he used the tax codes and Warren Buffett does too. And so we've gone through that as to just how the rich have uh, have avoided paying taxes is by using shelters. And frankly, Congress not only has gone along with them on it, Congress has been part and parcel. You get all the people from Goldman Sachs who go to work for Obama and they put in all these shelters, then they go back to Goldman Sachs and then they use them to their clients. And it, it's been a very long standing relationship between the federal government and major investment banking wealthy groups uh, that have done this. And I don't begrudge them that at all. I'm not saying this in a pejorative sense is if you do not get if you do not get uh, agreement from all sectors of the economy on tax policies, you're going to get pushback. And when your fallback is pushback, you're going to get these guys finding all sorts of ways around the tax codes and that they have done magnificently, just as you and I would expect them to do. And whenever you raise taxes on the rich, the rich pay less in taxes and the economy suffers. So uh, if you were hired to design the ideal tax policy for the federal government, we'll get to states in a second yeah. tomorrow. And you were just sort of given an imaginary wand that it will get through Congress, you know, yeah. which of course for you, Art, isn't totally imaginary. You had to really do it. At well, one, we got it once through in 86. We got it through you in know? 86. Yeah. But, but in this, but even then you, there had to be negotiation and of give course. and take and something Tip O'Neill was going to agree to. And you wanted Kemp on board and O'Neill on board. And of course, Reagan had to like it and all of it. But if you could just design it, it's what would, I did with Jerry Brown. Would you get rid of all the loopholes or shelters, as you call them, because there would just be such simplicity and flatness in the tax code? And wouldn't that raise taxes on real estate developers? Right? Like, like aren't there some shelters that a, an art-designed tax code would actually raise taxes on? And wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, what you what you find is I did this with Jerry uh, and I took static revenue as being the right revenue. So I, I wasn't looking at spending in this, but we got yeah. rid of all federal taxes, all of them. We got rid of the income tax. We got rid of the corporate tax. We got rid of the uh, capital gains tax. We got rid of the death tax. We got rid of payroll taxes, both employer, employee, Medicare, Medicaid, every single federal tax with the exception of sin taxes. And the reason we kept sin taxes is their purpose is not so much to raise revenues, David, as it is to change behavior. I jokingly say we Americans don't like drunk people smoking while we shoot each other. Um, I thought you'd enjoy that one. But I, I like it. I you. like it. And I, I, I want to come to back to a question on it. But so you left sin taxes in. We left sin taxes in and we then had static revenue, uh, which came out to 12 percent, 11.78 percent, I think, was the static revenue neutral runner. Uh, I rounded it up to 12 percent for Jerry. We had it both on personal income with no deductions, no exemptions from the first dollar to the last dollar and business net sales, which the Democrats call value added again, uh, coming out there to the first dollar to the last dollar with no deductions, exemptions or exclusions or omissions. 
And that we then, Jerry rounded it up to 13%, which is his 13% flat tax, which would have been very largely revenue above ground, above the static revenue. And then what we're going to do is as the surpluses came in, we're going to lower the rates further until get it down to where we had a really efficient government. But that's what I would do. That's very close to what I did with Reagan in 86. As you know, that was my baby based yeah. upon the book, the paper I wrote in 1981 called The Complete Flat Tax, which is the one I did for Jerry. And we were able to get it down to two tax rates, uh, 15 and 28 percent. Just two. We got went from 11 tax rates to two. We dropped the highest from 50 to 28. We raised the lowest from 12 and a half to 15. We cut the corporate rate from 46 to 34 percent. That was the bill we put through. We didn't have to make many concessions, by the way, David. Not really didn't. Uh, the vote in the Senate on that bill uh, was 97 to three in our favor. We had Al Gore, Te Teddy Kennedy, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Biden, Bill Bradley, all of them voted for it. Schumer, Pelosi, all of them voted. Harry Reid, uh, because it's the right thing to do. And that's when we got our biggest success. And then it got eaten away by the Bushes and all those other people that are not my favorites. But now is the time, I think, for us to really come back and look at the whole tax system of the U.S. And again, to go for the North Star and to try to provide the low rate, broad based flat tax, spending restraint, sound money, minimal regulations and free trade. And let's go for the gold. And, and so the, um, the ethical argument that it's unjust to have rich people not paying a punitive amount greater than middle-class people, the uh, ethical rebuttal is that they don't because they find ways to get out of it. And, and that's empirically demonstrable. Um, and then of course, I would argue this, I'm not speaking for you here. You're, you're putting out economic facts and historical data. I would argue philosophically that it's untrue that we want to punish productive activity and the accumulation of capital. Uh, we need capital formation. We need it to come back into the economy as savings becomes investment. Yep. Um, I think punishing savers and punishing investors and punishing capital formation hurts future growth. So I don't accept those arguments that what they're after morally comes about. Um, yet I still wonder if the supply siders that were 100% right in everything that they've done to promote economic growth through lower hindrances to such via regulation, energy policy, trade policy, and especially tax policy, if the supply siders could have done a better job promoting a right-sized government where spending didn't grow excessively? Well, I think that's, we, we did propose that. We tried to get spending down, getting governments out of the areas, privatization. Uh, now, some of the regulations like medical transparency, uh, I wrote enterprise zones in the early 70s to how to bring yeah. prosperity to the inner cities. Uh, there are lots of others, energy, uh, energy policies as well. Yeah. But uh, when you look at the argument, let's just take the moral argument. I, and it's very hard to be precise where that moral argument should be bounded. But let me just say, if you make 10 times as much as I do, David, you should pay 10 times as much in taxes as I do. That seems to me to be an arbitrary but very clear-cut, fair argument. Once you get different tax rates, you not only get different behavior and results, which you do get that you mentioned you know, why do you punish savers and investors? And all that's correct too. But also you get, by having different tax rates, you get all sorts of loopholes coming into the codes 
because one of the biggest arbitrages of the codes is moving from high tax entities to low tax entities. Uh, and once you get different tax rates, all of a sudden you've introduced all sorts of schema to get around the taxes by doing that. So on the face of it, everyone pays the same tax rates, means that you'll pay 10 times as much in taxes if you earn 10 times as much as I do. Uh, and that seems on the face of it fair. What you need to have on all of this is what you're saying is that you need to not only have buy-in with low-income earners, but you need to have buy-in with, buy with high-income earners too. When rich people feel they're getting screwed uh, by the government and they're fear, fear that the taxes aren't fair, then they go out and search for all the ways. Of con and they can hire more lawyers, more accountants, more deferred income specialists, more favor grabbers, more lobbyists than the, anyone else on earth can. And they will ultimately win just like they do. That's why we have the big story of Warren Buffett in that is they win and they win legally. They win correctly uh, yeah. because they can afford it and they do it. And if if you had a low rate broad based flat tax like I did with Jerry, uh, there would be no deductions, no exclusions, no omissions, no, and everyone would pay their fair share right off the top. You know why I think we can win this argument uh, over time about even the income tax w is because the left already knows it and agrees with it about the death tax. Now, I understand the income tax generates $2 trillion and the death tax generates about $20 billion but they don't fight for the death tax nope. because they know it doesn't raise any damn revenue. And it ruins publicity and public support. Everyone wants to give their kid a little bit. Everyone yep. loves their kids more than they love other people's kids. And it's just a, a not a political starter. With Jerry Brown's flat tax, we took all federal taxes and made them into two taxes an income tax, a low rate broad-based flat tax with no deductions, exemptions, or exclusions, and a low rate broad-based same rate of uh, value-added tax. And those two replaced all federal taxes. Will we see a Republican or a Democrat run with a Laffer-Brown tax idea again? I think so. I think this is right now, I mean, why I think this is so uh, opportune right now and apropos right now is the speaker's race in the mm -hmm. Republican Party. Uh, the question is, here you've got a bunch of guys who are around. They didn't do well in the election. Uh, they haven't done well with the economy. They've uh, had all sorts of renegade Republicans vote for the spending bills and all that stuff, which you and I disagree with and all that. And uh, now they want to take control of the House there. And it is time for a good free-for-all, I think. I think free-for-alls in the political environment are great. Uh, we had an awful Republican situation there with Jerry Ford and the leaders of the House and the Senate in 1974 through, let's say, 1980. And Ronald Reagan came in from the outside and provided real leadership with real goals. I am one, David, and I, I hope it's not against your views, but I find uh, retro revenge and, and anger and hatred really bad. I find going after uh, Hunter Biden and uh, just a, a diversion, one thing we shouldn't do, what we should do is we should be the stewards of the economy. If you're gay, if you're straight, who cares? Do you like tax cuts? Uh, if you're if you're pro-life or pro-choice, do you like tax cuts? Uh, my view is we should be stewards of the economy. We should be guardians of prosperity and provide. We are boring, dull people who know how to get the trains to run on time, to know how to get the proper level of government to let it be done. And that's what we should do. And that's where government's role should be. And uh, I think this battle going on now in the House is emblematic of trying to find the next leader 
which uh, will be Reagan or Jack Kemp or Bob Bartley or Jude Winiski or any of the others of the early. And I think we're going to find one. They're out there and they're great people and they need to bubble up to the top. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really agree that if there's anything I look to Republican uh, legislators to do, it's to hold the line on taxes. I, I um, am a pro-lifer and I am a strong national security Reagan conservative and I am a Me lot too. of things. Me, in my all own those way. I am too. But, but I think that um, you're right that you would look at a sort of a baseline um, that a basic philosophy of, of taxes ought to be uh, uh, kind of table stakes, you know, to, to serve right. on the right in the U.S. Congress. I, I, the leadership side and having that right candidate, um, you know, one of my favorite things President Trump did is honor you with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I love that he pardoned Milken, by the way. And I certainly love a lot of the corporate tax reform that he got done. And I'm also thankful to Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady and others yeah, of course. Uh, who couldn't have, we couldn't have done it without them. But I don't know that the moment in history that we right, have found that guy yet, right? The, the Reagan, the camp, the, the leader, the moral authority to go promote um, the, the message you're talking about. And I think that we need to get rid of the, the fights, the revenges, the the jealousies, the ego, the narcissism, Ugh. the pettiness, the punching down. I'm not a billionaire, but I'm a pretty wealthy guy, as you know, and I'm not the president of the United States, but I have a decent little platform with my small business or whatever. But I'll tell you, that idea of punching down at people, if I were the president of the United States and a multi-billionaire, it would never happen. No. The only reason I'd want that is so I would never have to think about all those people again, a little CNN reporter or some, per you know what I mean? I do. That's, we need someone who takes on the cause, not those smaller. Yeah. Battles. And you know, it's always very easy to see who they are in retrospect. It's very hard to see who they are in future. For example, yeah. let's take Ronald Reagan. And I don't know if you know his past in there. He was leader of AFTRA and SAG. Sure. He was the union boss. He was the most militant union boss, causing a nationwide strikes. He was one of the real aggressive anti-business uh, union leaders. Yep. When he was elected governor of California, he was the biggest tax increaser ever. He raised the highest income tax rate from 9.2 to 11.2, corporate from 9 to 11, capital gains from 9.2. He chaired the Equal Rights Amendment. He got rid of all the anti-abortion statutes in the state of California. Who could guess that guy would be the greatest president ever? But no fault divorce no fault divorce laws remember that oh yeah of course yeah. all of that and all of that he became the greatest thing and the reason he did was because he learned and he became the symbol of everything we believe now to be pro growth and things that he opposed totally when he was in his past so what what i beg people not to do is don't judge everyone by their past look as to what they will be in the future uh, Jack Kemp, when he started at the Kemp Capital Accumulation Act, which is the silliest thing I'd ever seen. Jude and I spent days and months and years with him trying to get him. And finally, that he saw it, the tax cuts, when just to show how it, he bought into it. it. You know, Jack, do you know who Jack's middle name is? Remember? No. French. It was Jack, oh. Jack French Kemp. He okay. was the second JFK. Oh, yeah. I yeah. loved it. So that we got him the JFK tax cut we broke because we were all Kennedy Democrats from the yep. 60s who brought it to Jack and did he love, he was the second JFK. And, you know, 
it, it doesn't matter. But once he bought into the role, he became the greatest spokesman ever. Uh, same with Bob Bartley. Same thing with uh, with President Reagan. Same thing with Jude Winiski. Jude was an ex-commie from from Las Vegas, and all of these guys joined us and became the the the, the happy warriors. You know, and that's what I love about that. And you never could have guessed that looking at it in retrospect. But this this is a, a area you bring up that <clears throat> I think is important for the future. Um, and it's something I have benefited so much from guys like you and Larry and Steve Forbes and George Gilder, who are winsome and intelligent and happy warriors, um, and yet very philosophical. There's a real a true north of ideology of what yeah. we believe about economics, what we believe about political science, about civic responsibility. I worry in the populist moment that sometimes you get people doing the right thing but maybe not for the right reasons. And it isn't as foundational. It isn't as core that you can't build a movement off of it where what ignited Kemp and Reagan and Bartley and Winiski is at Gilder. These guys believed it. It was yes. really philosophical. Yes, that's true. And that's so, so important. I mean, what you do say, and you know, by having that leadership, you could get rid of these fringe groups and force them to come into the mainstream of the big tent. Uh, you know, uh, it, it would be hard to have impeachment hearings on Mallorcas if we were really launching the missile of low rate, broad based flat tax, spending restraints, sound money, minimal regulations, free trade, medical transparency, enterprise zones, uh, energy freedom. You know, all of those takes all the oxygen out of the tent and provide the prosperity. And then who cares about Hunter Biden? I mean, you know, you know why I'm most against the Hunter Biden thing? Because I don't believe it's going to hurt him. I think it's going to help him. Because I think it's a dad who was utterly heartbroken about his son's demons. Of course he was. So wouldn't you be? Of course I would. I mean, you know, and you look at this and let's take something on the border. Just, just you and I for a second. I mean, this woman comes here from Panama. Uh, she's got two little kids and she illegally enters the United States. Throw her in jail. Death penalty for those two kids and the mom. No. What would you do if you were in Honduras, David, if you were there with your two kids, single mom, what would you do to get into the United States? These need to be addressed with humanity, with love, with respect, with empathy, with sympathy, not with hatred, not with anger, not with, this is a loving world. You know, raise the tent, allow them all to come in. These are all people that we understand and we don't hate them. Now, you need rules and regulations for immigration. We all know that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, you've got to do it with love not with hate, not with anger. And that was the thing I, I loved about Ray, Ronald Reagan's transition because he went from angry, violent to a loving, wonderful president who just loved everyone. Well, and I think that happy warrior deal has been a little um, out of vogue for the last five, six, seven years. And I think it's going to come back. And I don't think it's going to come back and look like Mitt Romney or Mitch McConnell. I don't. I think people brand certain folks establishment or whatever. But you know who was you know who was a great precedent for this, and I is what I talked to Larry about last time he was on, Bill Buckley, because because he did have a civility and a humor and an intelligence, but God was he principled. And, and yet he was likable. He's and one of my people, dearest friends, as you know. People, and people, as you know, people hated him on the right because they couldn't understand he was so friendly with Galbraith and Capote and all, you know, so many of the New York liberals or whatever. But I, I don't think you need 
folks that are compromised, but I think you need, I think you're going to need that leadership of course. That has that that winsomeness and that talent that Reagan had and that, that Buckley, Buckley had, had really? for sure. No. And Goldwater did not have. No. And, no. you know, Romney does not have it. I mean, no. Romney's a fine person. I know him quite well. He's yeah. very principled. He's very, but but he's angry. He's got some anger down deep in there. And uh, and I, I don't like that anger. I, I, I really don't. I, I want people to join with us. I want, I mean, when we got that bill passed in 86, 97 to three in the Senate, I can't tell you how happy I was. I mean, how happy it was just, I, I, I wanted to kiss the earth just to say, God bless America. We're so the 86 one, or the 86 one more than the 82 one. 82 warmed one your heart. Good too. I had oh. to get two co-sponsors uh, of the tax bill and the spending bill. You know, we got Phil Graham. It was Graham Lotta. Phil yeah. was then a Democrat, good friend of mine, professor of economics. And we got him with Lotta, uh, Del Lotta, who was a house member as well. So that was the spending bill. Uh, and then we got uh, Kent Hance, who was one of my dearest friends, also a PhD. He was a student of mine at the University of Texas, Lubbock. And uh, we got him with Hans Conable, Barbara Conable, to be the tax rate bill. So we had co-sponsors, Democrat, Republican in the House on the spending bill and co-sponsors on the House bill. We won big, a big majority, but nothing like we did in 86. Yeah. But it was just wonderful. Now, we made a big mistake on that one, David. We phased in the tax cuts which caused the deep recession of 81, 82. It yeah. wasn't monetary policy, but uh, but it did cause that. And But, you know, but not through anyone's deliberate policies. It was, it was That was just a mistake that was made by Harding and Coolidge as well. It was a mistake made by Kennedy on their tax cuts, phasing it in. Well, let me, let me close up with a question on states because the federal side, I think a lot of listeners agree with us. The supply siders have made this case about federal tax, you know, problems. You and Brian have written this authoritative book. I can't recommend to listeners. By the way, enough. we had a co-author as well, Jean Sinkfield. Who's I'm a sorry. And she did a heck of a lot of work on this too. She was just yeah. great. Yeah, fine research going into it. And, and, and I appreciate you bringing that up. I did not mean to leave Jean out. I know I you didn't. I know you didn't. The, um, the issue of what federal government needs to be funded for is one question, and then, and then how it's funded, you've answered. States are a little trickier. A lot of the things I don't want the federal government doing are things I want the states doing, and yet we certainly don't want an anti-incentive tax code with states. You brought up some criticisms of property taxes. Now, you're in a state that doesn't have a state income tax in Tennessee. I've opened an office in Nashville. Florida is famously growing like crazy, uh, and Texas growing like crazy, both without a state income tax. What is the ideal way for taxes for uh, states to fund themselves, given your view on, on uh, high marginal income rates? Yeah. At present, there is no ideal way, except for the fact that you want the broadest possible tax base and the lowest tax rate. Now, some states can do it really well, like Utah with an income tax. Some states can do it really well with a sales tax like Tennessee. Uh, some states can do it with combinations, but you want the, the least number of tax bases to be your thing. And uh, Oregon, for example, doesn't have, an in doesn't have a sales tax, but they do have an income tax. And Washington doesn't have an income tax, but it does have a sales tax. So this is where experimentation by the states is really, really important for us to discover. The and then you do you do have four states: New York, New Jersey, Illinois, California. In case people are wondering, uh, they have a high income tax, a high sales tax, a high property tax, a high investment tax, a high death tax. 
that would be what you don't want to do. That's what you, you do realize that in 1965, New Jersey had neither an income tax nor a sales tax. Yeah. It was the second fastest growing state in the nation. Everyone was moving into New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it had a balanced budget and just was growing like mad. And uh, when Chris Christie took office, it had the highest sales tax, the highest income tax, the highest property tax, the slowest growing state in the nation. People were leaving like rats out of a sinking ship and they had a huge budget deficit. I mean, the evidence is just so clear, David. The clearest correlation was the um, growth of public employee unions. That's well. That's it, and we got rid of a lot of them. But now there are a couple that are going back. Missouri uh, got rid of its uh, 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 right to work laws and yeah. went back to force union. Uh, Michigan looks like it might go the other way. But you know these things are. That's part of the experimentation. You got to win the argument. Yeah, I, I don't want to criticize the other people for their views because they hold those views probably as firmly as I hold mine. And let's let a battle go on. Let's let's test these out. Let's see where it is. I mean, the reason I mentioned the 11 states that have introduced the income tax to you earlier is that is probably the best single natural experiment I have ever seen. As those states adopted an income tax, let's see what happened to them. And bam, you can see what happened to them. And it's just beautiful. Now they are all in the very bottom group of the of the states in the nation. But you, you sound like a real Madisonian federalist. I love this. Different states can do different tax experiments. Yes. And that's part of the beauty of our union and form of government is what might be the ideal tax scenario in Florida would be different than Nevada, different yeah. than Missouri. That's your view here. I love it. It is. It's just that view. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been going on for a long, long time. And people are allowed to move. States are allowed to have different policies and people are allowed to vote with their feet. Uh, we have the what the Watchman Clause of the Constitution allows you to go anywhere you want to as long as you're willing to abide by the local regulations, restrictions, and taxes of the location you move to. We have one language. We have no borders, barriers to state, uh, any tariffs, restrictions. So it's great. People vote with their feet and states can learn what to do and what not to do. And sometimes and we just don't get something and all, all of a sudden it just pops us. Milton Friedman in the Monetary History of the United States and analyzing the Great Depression, never mentioned the, the taxes, never mentioned the Smoot-Hawley tariff or any of that. He talked only about money. Right. Obviously, I think it's all taxes. Uh, but at that time, taxes weren't the discussion. And who knew that that tax bill of 32 would cause the damage it did? No one did. Now we Yeah, do. yeah. No, it's interesting. It would be one thing if Milton and Anna had critiqued the theory that Smoot-Hawley exacerbated the depression so that I could have heard what their counter argument was, but to have not addressed it, I think it, I think it was necessary in Milton's formation of monetarism at that time. And I certainly agree that the Fed cutting off money supply at that point, Bob Mundell agreed with that. He just yes, didn't yes. think it was, he didn't think it was the whole story. He thought it was part of a story. You know? Yep. Very so I, 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 you know, Art, I could just talk to you all day. I love this. I really want listeners to get this book, Taxes Have Consequences by Art Laffer. Um, the, the several co-authors that provided a lot of information, a lot of research. Um, it just came out. It's the hottest number one book on Amazon and free enterprise right now. Um, and so I really believe that this message is, it, the book is going to equip people with a lot of information. So when they're, when they're professor at college or the guy they're talking to at the bar or the coffee shop brings up some issue, it just provides, it's not politically loaded. It's just no, empirical it's information. And, and it is sort of fun because you get someone like Saez that says the, 
uh, the laugher rate is 73%. That's the revenue maximizing from the rich rate. And yet we have three years, 1919, 1920, and 1921, when the rate was 73%. Mm. And they dropped it down to 25% revenues went way up, you know, yeah. just right flat in his face. It's a pie right in Saez's face. Uh, I saw a picture of, of Furman's teaching it at Harvard, where he has the, the proper rate for the rich is 73% as well. You know, it's not true. No. You know, the revenues from the top 1% of income earners under Reagan and Kennedy went way up. Way up. Yeah. And yeah, just to refute everything, we've got the numbers and it's not a sample. It's every damn tax return there is. We know who the top 1% were by name and by average income, by taxes they paid. Bingo. Yeah. Well, I appreciate not only the work of this new book, but the uh, decades and decades of work to the cause. Uh, I promise you uh, at 82, uh, I will be going as strong as I can. If God blesses me great. with the same great life he's given you, I will keep fighting the good fight, my friend. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, David. It's been loads of fun being with you again. Lots and enjoy uh, Southern California and Newport. I'll do my best. It's the best. I miss it. Well, it, it, besides the 13.3% uh, state rate, I Don't enjoy it as well. Don't so. miss that. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for uh, bearing with this conversation with Art and I. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope you'll buy the book, Taxes Have Consequences. I hope uh, you will see the incredible importance of, through all the various controversies that exist, all the disagreements, all the things out there right now as it pertains to monetary policy, trade policy, spending, this and that, the one thing that you would think those on the right committed to the cause of a free and virtuous society could agree to is the need for a lesser tax burden and greater incentives for human productivity. It is at the core. I would root my case in the moral argument for the great things that happen when the human spirit is allowed maximum productivity, maximum incentive, uh, what we can do to the quality of life, what we can do to of others, what we can do to meet human needs, to lift others out of poverty. Uh, Art has understood this for many, many years, and he is exactly right that at the root of it all, you cannot get anywhere when you're still getting redistributionist arguments, uh, burdensome arguments about tax policy standing in the way. Get Art's new book, share this Capital Record episode with as many as you'd like, uh, subscribe, rate us, and in the meantime, we look forward to a really special Capital Record next week where I'll be bringing on Rusty Reno. For us to talk about our recent back and forth articles related to the future of capitalism, uh, where the state needs to fit in in the um, market economy. And I'm looking forward to a discussion um, where there is real genuine disagreement between myself and uh, Rusty Reno of First Things. That'll be our guest next week on Capital Record. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. Thank <laughs> you.